you know, we can do the most with what we what God gives us. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said, "There's there, God must love plain people because He made so many of them." <laughs> I've never forgot that. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 14, and today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Laura France. Now, uh, Laura and I talked about her book, The Rose and the Thistle, and um, that released in January, but unfortunately, I wasn't able to finish reading it before our conversation. So I want to tell you that it is amazing. It is one of the best historical romances I read. Laura has just such a way of describing um, places that I just felt like I was right where she was describing. So this book is set in Scotland, and I felt like I was in Edinburgh, Edinburgh or the Lowlands, wherever she had her characters. And the characters are just so well-drawn, just beautiful. Anyway, that's as much as I will gush about that, but um, you will really enjoy this conversation Laura is a delight. We always, um, you know, we talk about the book, but we always talk about a lot of other things as well. And I may even get a little teary-eyed at one point during this conversation because I am a crier. But that being said, it's worth the listen. It's wonderful to talk to Laura. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Laura France. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the show again. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes, your latest novel, The Rose and the Thistle, released on January 3rd. Can you tell me about this book? Right. Well, I'll try to do it in a few short, sweet sentences. And basically, it's um, amid the Jacobite uprising of 1715, an English heiress flees to the Scottish lowlands to stay with allies of her powerful family. But while castle walls may protect her from the enemy outside, a whirlwind of intrigue, shifting allegiances and temptations of the heart lie within. So some historical fireworks there in Scotland for you. Yes, it's interesting because I have read two of your novels about early America. And now I'm immersed in this story. I you know, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm, I think I'm like a quarter to a third of the way through. Um, set in Scotland in, in 1715. So what inspired you to write this novel? Well, my family ancestry, they had a crisis in, in my Scottish ancestry, I should say, in 1715. Mm-hmm. That was a kind of a critical turning point for Britain. They were trying to, they were basically warring over who would be king of Britain. And my Scottish ancestors, my sixth great grandfather, George Hume, was a noble at that time, and uh, Wedderburn Castle was his castle, and it's on the back of the uh, the novel. Um, it, that's not the actual castle at that time. That was built a little bit later in the century after mm. the 1715 Rebellion. But anyway, um, he got in trouble with the crown because he fought with the Jacobites to try to restore the Stuarts to the throne. So he was expelled um expelled from Great Britain and and dumped on Virginia's shores. And that's how I came to be. <laughs> that's wow. how our, our American family came about. It was because of George's rebellion. And 
And I've always been fascinated by that bit of history in my family. So it was fun to flesh it out. He was a known traitor, but he was actually a good man. Uh, very, uh, he was a Christian. He had very strong beliefs. He he didn't like that a German was sitting on the throne. Um, I don't mm-hmm. like that all these years later either. <laughs> That's how it played out. And so it was it was fun to actually delve into the documents and and primary sources of that time period because if you were a trader and one of the nobility back then, it was pretty well. Um, pretty well documented about what happened. And so it wasn't mm. too hard to research, thankfully. Yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting. So you knew about this, like all your life, you knew about this p- piece of history in your ancestry? I, I did. There's been this elaborate family tree passed mm. down. It's frameable. Uh, in, in fact, I should frame it probably passed down by my, it, the Humes came in, were a part of my grandmother's side. So it would be my father's mother and she's mm-hmm. the direct descendant, which makes me the direct descendant. But uh, she, it was through her family that they were quite proud of her history. In fact, I have an aunt today whose middle name is Hume from that mm-hmm. side of the family, like the Humes in this novel. And mm-hmm. so I didn't, you know, growing up with that history, you know, we kind of knew we had Scottish, you know, we knew we had Scottish ancestry. We have this elaborate genealogy that was passed down to us and, you know, given to each of us. And my aunts, you know, certain generations kind of, they just don't have a lot of interest in history. And my father's right. sisters just didn't, even though one of them bears the Hume name, middle name. Mm-hmm. Um and I kind of skipped a generation because I was just riveted by it. I thought, right. you know, they weren't, but I was fascinated by it. And here was this treasure trove. And there were these actually, I don't, we don't have the letters, the letters, they don't know what happened to the letters that George Hume, my sixth great grandfather wrote to Scotland. He never was able to return to Scotland, but there were surviving letters. Someone had transcribed them and made copies. And so we have those today and it's just a record of, you know, a, his, a record of a, kind of a footnote in history that you usually don't have a, a bird's eye view of. So I thought this makes wonderful novel fodder, at least to me. Of course, the danger, and you're not into the good part of the book. <laughs> I'll say <laughs> you're, um, you know, you have to set the stage. It was a complex political situation. It didn't happen overnight. And so I had to probably spend the first fourth of the novel setting it up. And it took me two years to research. So I don't expect reader. Yeah, it was the hardest book to research ever for me. I don't expect the reader to grasp, grasp it unless they have a knowledge of the Stuart dynasty in Britain and um, the Jacobite history. It helps if you know a little bit about it. And, right. Yeah. It's confusing. Complex. So can you tell us kind of a, a synopsis for, of what was going on with the Jacobites at that time? Well, you know, the Jacobites were just, they were loyal to the Stuart monarchs who had been on the throne for centuries. Mm-hmm. And the Stuarts were Catholic. So what it boiled down to was Great Britain, Scotland and England merged at the beginning of the 18th century. They had been two distinct nations, but anyways, they came together. And um, it 
basically all this political turmoil happened. So, you know, do we keep the Catholic stewards on the throne? At that time, Catholicism was viewed as as an evil. Catholics mm. were persecuted. It was very, very sad and mm. uh, unwarranted. But, you know, do we keep the Stuart monarchy on the throne? They're predominantly Catholic. Or do we choose a long lost relative over here from the Hanoverians? They're Protestant. You know, there's no Catholic threat there. So basically it was just, it was this huge war over between a Catholic monarch and a and a Protestant monarch is what it boiled down to. And so it, it makes a good, <laughs> a good if confusing novel setting because you, I think readers, if you tell historical fiction, right, it should be a little less dry than a textbook. And yes. you should, if you don't grasp it, none of us can grasp it. I didn't even grasp it. How can I? I'm not even Scottish. You know, I'm telling mm-hmm. the story through an American lens. So to set up the novel, it, it probably, I, I was fascinated from the first, you know, the novel opens with Blythe, our heroine in France. And I was able to go to the chateau where, and the gardens that she was running through in those first chapters. And that was oh, fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Last year really brought it to life. And then I, you know, she, in the novel, she moves home to Northumberland, England before she goes over the border to Scotland. So there are three, you know, three novel settings, but it's predominantly Scotland. And that is a bit of the backdrop that's happening in that novel. Right. And you do a wonderful job setting that up. But you're right about the, like, I'm a little over a quarter of the way in, and they just, she just met... I, I forget what his title is, but the oh, Earl. Laird. The, Earl. The, the, Earl. Yeah, the, new, the new Earl of Wedderburn. Right. Yes. And it was fun because Wedderburn exists. It still exists. What happened when my George went to America and was banished, it went to a distant relative and they still have it, believe it or not. So that is the castle where this actually takes place because yeah. there's also an, an old, old ruins. Yes, right. down the road, just a few miles. That's, yeah, Hume Castle, which was the predecessor of Wedderburn. And, you know, usually okay. when you get these big piles, as they call these big estates, there's, you know, you you get the medieval hulk that's often decaying, like Fast Castle on the coast, which is also in the mm-hmm. book. And you get Hume Castle. And, you know, they're all within, you know, miles of each other. And then you get Wedderburn, which is the most modern of the pile okay. and um, the one that they were inhabiting by that period in history. But that is still standing and you visited. Is that right? Yeah. What happened is the part of it is still standing. There's a courtyard there with a stone that marks mm-hmm. the original castle that had been there that they, Okay. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've got quite a few pictures of it. I think I've shared them on social media, but, but the actual castle that's on the back of the novel is on that ground. That's the castle that has the courtyard, original courtyard and plaque in it. And, um, but that beautiful castle on the novels back cover is exists today as a wedding venue. Um, So I was standing on the ground Mm. of, where my ancestors had actually walked and fought and, and 
courted and married and had children, uh, wow. it has a new face now. You know, it's become okay. a little bit grander and but so beautiful. I yeah, I was there and it just walked down that beautiful driveway and went all around, had one of my favorite pictures made with two on our Scotland tour. T- my cousin went, who is a Hume descendant, and then a reader who is a Hume descendant also went. So I have a picture of the three of us standing by that castle. So it's oh, wow. quite a moving, poignant experience to be there. I wonder what old George would have thought of it. <laughs> you know, all these years. <laughs> yeah. So did you find things out while you were in Scotland that affected the story that you were writing? It was interesting because I went to Scotland last May and I didn't get the final, let's see, the the edits, I guess you call them the, uh, the page, the pages. No, it was the step before that. I didn't get the galleys back okay. until I returned. And it was interesting because I've been to Scotland several times and it's always a learning curve because we're, you know, Americans. Many of mm-hmm. us have Scottish ancestry and we're proud of it and we're fascinated by it. And that's why we go over there. But, um, you know, it, it did help me. It, it informed me and had me make some slight changes to the novel. But I, like oh. I said, I've been before. So my focus has always been on the history. But every time you go, you get a little sharper. You know, little doors are opened historically for you that you didn't know before. So I, I can't think of any instances in particular where I um, made changes to the novel when I got back. But I think, mm-hmm. I'm sure I did. I felt more capable or more competent when I got those galleys and then the pager sure. before it went to print. Although, you know, it's as I said before, told through an American lens. And I'm because of that, it's, it's a flawed story. And, you know, I I made mistakes. If a Scottish person read it, they would probably say, no, no, you know, there's a mistake here, a mistake there. You know, I, it's Mm -hmm. interesting process. Right. Well, I think all our stories are flawed. We can only do as well as we can do. Right. Yeah, and my pastor said it so well. He said, there's only one perfect book, the Bible, mm. and it has plenty of detractors. <laughs> yes, that is true. You kind of put everything in perspective. Yes, we do yes. our best, but we're flawed people. We do flawed work, but we, I think we're inspired by, you know, these these gifts of writing are not are ours on loan, I guess I should say. And we just get to steward them and hopefully we steward them well. Right. Yes. So I, I didn't know a lot about the Jacobites and the uprising before. And it sounds like you learned a lot while you were writing this book or in order to write it. Um, So do you feel that learning about that or writing this book in any way changed your view of history? It really did. It, in a way, it made me more horrified by oh. by all the rulers of Britain, both kings and queens. I mean, there were horrific things that happened. You mm-hmm. know, royalty seems like you know the, an elevated sort of existence, but in fact, they're just human beings. You know, they. I think it. It's 
their flaws are magnified because here we are reading about these rulers, you know, centuries later, they, they had bloody, bloody, tragic lives. Most of them. I, when I, after studying, I started with the first Stuart King and went to Queen Anne, who was the last, supposedly the last on the throne, although they Mm -hmm. were trying to keep the Stuarts on the throne. Um, And I was just pretty horrified by, you know, all that, that transpired over the Stuart, the Stuart reign. Charles II is probably the most interesting King I encountered. I do say I, I, I read, read up through all the Georges, the Hanoverian line, and I'm mm-hmm. my favorite king is the one who lost America, George the Third. So it did oh. shift my, uh, you know, even even that the Hanoverians when they came in and all the Georges uh, were fast. That was fascinating to me. You know, during 1715 in the novel, you have George the First, and in the novel there's a scene you haven't gotten to it yet where George the First appears. And he has an interaction with my hero. And I found that fascinating. And so I had wow. to, you know, go beyond uh, 1715 to find out I was so uh, riveted by the Georges that I had mm-hmm. to read beyond through the, to the Regency period, you know, oh, wow. to the 19th century to, to appreciate how the Stuarts became, you know, all those morphed into these Georges. I mean, it's just hmm. amazing. And then you have Queen Victoria and then you had Queen Elizabeth and, yes. and fascinating history. I tell you, I'm glad we don't have Kings and Queens in America, but I do love George the third. He was a good man. He was tried to be a godly man. He was ridiculed. He actually went mad hmm. because of a medical condition. He, he never forgave himself for losing the American colonies. And oh, wow. um, I found him to be out of all the kings and queens I had read, the one with, that had a conscience, who was faithful mm. to his wife, who tried wow. to do the right things. And he was one of the most maligned. So anyway, it's it was just fascinating. And it did uh, tweak my view of history, but in a good way, I think. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. It's um, You could just never finish. Never learning all there is. No, <laughs> I don't think I'll be in the grave. But then I think, well, you know, heaven, as they say, I can't remember who is. I think heaven is just one big library. I think it's mm. an eternal <laughs> library where our where the stories we love best ever end. How is that for for grand yeah. yeah, I think it. You know, it obviously will blow our minds. But I do think. You know, when you think of, you know, will we be reading in heaven? I think we'll be eating in heaven and doing all these things. Yes. I think some of us who are writers here will be writing in heaven, but I don't know how that. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Right. I I don't know how that'll look either, but yeah, I think so. Because I think that we, God will have um, some kind of good work for us to do. And it's interesting to think about a library, though, because I often think that we'll be able to read about, or at least see somehow. Yeah. Our own stories and how all of our stories fit together. Oh, what and, a beautiful you know, thought, right? Yeah, just to see what God's family. plan was. Yes, because our lives are, each tell a very unique story. And, mm-hmm. you know, you when you think about that, it's just mind-blowing, but very exciting. And to think that we'll be out of time, we'll be in eternity 
an eternal, will have an eternal Mm -hmm. existence where there are no book endings. I don't think there's no such thing as books ending. I think that's one of the, the hardest things for me. I just finished a book the other day and I was just heartbroken. I, Mm. It's like all I could do not to cry in bed at night because this writer is just so incredible and she's departed. I mean, she died in 1984, oh. but her, her wealth of language and her insight into human nature, I don't think I've found anybody that matches her. It's Elizabeth Gouge. And okay. oh my goodness, she, and she was a deeply spiritual person, but you know, you just get so attached to these characters and then you have to, you know, the end comes all too soon. And I know we all do that with authors today, maybe even with our own stories, but I think Kevin hopefully will be books like that, that just don't have an end perhaps. Right. That's a good thought. (laughs) Now, do you, when you think of the Rose and the Thistle, and I know we were talking before I started recording about how you're, three books ahead of this already. <laughs> yes, I, well, I filed that away. Isn't that terrible? It's not how to dampen a podcast. Say, no, that's, <laughs> that's okay. But can you yeah. remember with the Rose and the Thistle, what, um, what lessons or themes do you think come through that in that book? Well, it's really very much a story of trust, you know, trusting other people, trusting God with your circumstances, both the hero and the heroine in the Rose and the Thistle are thrown into a situation that they don't want, that Mm -hmm. um, they have to come to grips with and determine what kind of people they'll be as they navigate it. You know, we all have choices as to how we respond to things. And very much so it's, it's just a story of who do we trust? How are we going to respond what we're, what are we going to do with this? And in the end, it's, you know, all about life and, and the Lord's leading and, you know, seeing him guide us as opposed to panicking and trying to do everything in our own strength. And that's basically what I put the the characters through. And they always teach me because this was written, I was researching during the pandemic so I'm sure there's photos of that, uh, you know, and I was writing during the pandemic. So I'm yeah. sure, you know, it sh- the pandemic shook us all up in different ways. We're still not out of it, although they minim- you know, it's been minimized so much. It's become more like the common cold, maybe, or the mm-hmm. flu. And um, mm-hmm. but I think we're not the people we were on back in 2020, early 2020. And I think it yeah. reflects in our writing. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. And we have all had losses. I mean, you've had a major loss. I am my best yes. friend passed. Yeah, we both. Have yes, you have too. Right. right. And that shapes and cha- you know, cha- changes you for better or worse. It does. It does. And now I don't have the quote in front of me, but that reminds me of... Um, the um the earl the laird right. <laughs> i don't know why i cannot keep any terms for those scots <laughs> nobles yeah and i just i just learned here you go it's an ongoing invocation there there's bonnet laird there is tobacco laird and there's tobacco lord 
there are three oh. very distinct things. I'm writing about tobacco lords now in novel 16. So there's oh, a wow. delineation there. They're very different things. And they meant very different things to people in that society at that time. So Lord, is it the Lord of Wedderburn or Lord? The Laird or Lord Wedderburn. The Laird. Right. So is he is he one of those three things that you just mentioned? He is. Yes, he's he he was a little bit um let's see. He's definitely a laird. He's not a bonnet laird. A bonnet laird is a small landowner. A okay. laird has substantial holdings like our Lord Wedderburn. Um Okay. And a laird just means a lord, like you would right. say. You know, in England, they called them lords. In Scotland, they called them lairds. The tobacco lords were were coming into being in Glasgow at that time, but it was a little too soon for them. Okay. They hadn't become the powerhouses they would be with the transatlantic trade and the Virginia colony and things like that. Yeah, then that's where Novel 16 is going. Okay. We'll get to that in a minute, but I did want to mention because Laird Wedderburn mentions right after his father dies in the book, which is the part that I'm reading. Um, he says that he had, he has since the hour of his father's passing, he'd eaten without tasting, listened without hearing, spoken without weighing his words. Was that grief too? I thought, yes, yes, it is. That is it. No, I know. Cause it's, it's, for you, it's my timetable m- might be off, but we were talking about your grief last year at this. Yes, time. we were. So it was December so of twenty twenty one. Right, yeah. so fresh. Mine was July of twenty twenty one. So it's okay. Been longer, but it but it's still no less painful. You know, right, it just. just Maybe the disbelief is blunted because yours happened like mine. There was no warning. Right. Really, really no warning. Anyway. Yes. Yes. But I do, you know, and to write that, I think you have to be acquainted with grief. If you weren't, yes. how, would you, how could you write that? You know? Right. Mm. Yeah. And so you wrote, did you write this after your loss? Yes, after Ginger died, my best friend of COVID mm, in yes. July of 2021, for readers who don't know that. And she, I dedicated uh, my previous novel, A Heart Adrift, to Ginger. Mm-hmm. Um, and because as I was writing that novel, she passed away. Dear, dear friend, mm. like, you know, just like a sister. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, well, thank you. And, and I just, I think as you go on, you get, uh, it doesn't, I don't know how would you describe grief? It doesn't get easier, but it, the disbelief gets blunted maybe a little bit. Yes. Be, yes. Right. It, I don't know. It's so hard to describe because there are times I think it's better. And then it goes other in times. waves. Yes. Right. Yes. It goes in waves. You think you're, progressing, but should we even measure grief as progress? I don't think so. I think, you know, when someone we love dies, a part of us does, but yet the love we shared is eternal. Is, does that Yes. Yeah. And I think it's that when like you, you learn how to go on and, yes. and to enjoy the parts of life that you still have. Yes. Joy but and once, and, 
co- can coexist. I never realized. Yes. But then once in a while, and I'll try to say this without crying, there's yes. a place that only that person. Yes. Or, or something that was only, only belonged to that person that it'll never be filled on this earth. You can't. No, that get that same. Isn't that the remarkable thing? Nobody, no one takes, nothing takes their place. Right. Yeah. It's as unique as our fingerprints. It's that kind of, it's just an overwhelmingly intimate, you know, loss where nothing can replace it. And like you said so well, you just learn how to go on. You learn how mm-hmm. to live with it. So it was interesting to me to have, you know, I'm, I was thinking there, there's been quite a bit of death <laughs> in my novels lately. In A Heart Adrift, I lost a beloved character, and then, you know, that was an unnatural death. But then in The Rose and the Thistle, yes. the Laird, hopefully it's not too much a spoiler, loses his father, who is actually is a minor secondary character. And, right. you know, but I thought it maybe made the new layered, more sympathetic. And it was fascinating to me to have, you know, you hear about these great houses, these estates changing hands, you know, the, the old Earl or the Duke would die and son and heir. There's a lot, you know, you talk about the heir and the spare. There's a lot, there was a lot resting on that. And a lot of, you know, there was a lot of dissipation and twiddling away of fortunes by gaming and gambling and, just, you know, outlandish living. But this mm-hmm. hero of ours is an upstanding Laird who doesn't do any of that, despite the yeah. times. And, you know, I always have to write men of noble character. I Redeemed rogues are kind of fun. I'm writing one right now, but mm. they're more of a challenge, I think, to redeem mm-hmm redeem a rogue than have an upstanding hero from the start. It was hard making yeah. character arcs for them because you have two older, two older people as hero and heroine. And I'm, I'm moving away from the young, naive, green as corn char- <laughs> characters. I think it reflects my own age. I find them very frivolous many times. I don't know oh, yes. Things. Yeah. So it's fun to, you know, Everard, it's basically I'm setting these heroes at the time of Jesus ministry, you know, he was in his early thirties and my heroes Mm. kind of, they're turning out to be in their early thirties, which I think is a men in their prime. And my heroines are, would be considered spinsters, a term which has Mm -hmm. been used for a long, long time. And um, our heroine is rapidly becoming a spinster, but she's actually doesn't give a hoot, which is one of the (laughs) things I like about her. So yes. Yes, she's not. Yeah, I like that classes. about her too. Yeah, she's into books. She's she not glasses. Yes. Yeah. So the um, and that is something I wanted to talk about was your your um, heroine Blythe because um in in several of your books I've noticed you wrote heroines with unconventional looks as far as you expect from a heroine. So, um. Yes. The protagonist in a heart adrift, she she was plus sized, and now in the rose and the thistle, uh, other characters at least describe Blythe as plain. So why did you not make her outwardly beautiful? Well, you know there was such a furor at that time 
over cosmetics and dress and appearance. And mm. I, I, I was very disturbed um, by our culture's obsession with youth and beauty, which fame, mm-hmm. you know, but like the Bible says, you know, the, that quiet spirit, godly spirit is unfading, gentle and quiet spirit. And so yes. I thought, you know, I'm going to take the focus off. I'm going to, to put Blythe, make her not attractive for that time period. The standard of beauty for 1715 was very different than today. She was, Blythe is thin in the novel. Thin was associated mm-hmm. with poverty. Um, mm-hmm. So beautiful women then were plump. Uh, Charles II, one of his plump mistresses, he called her Fubsy, which kind of tells you she was a little bit round. I mean, where um, the standard of beauty was very different. Spectacles or glasses were not, you know, considered a beauty asset. You know, she had her head in her books. She that was another detractor, although. Kings and or queens and princesses of medieval times were often well schooled, like Blythe in this novel. It was considered mm-hmm. by Blythe's age a, a major deterrent to a suitor. You know, oh. not a good and and she's thin. You know, the, the worry then was can she have children? You know mm-hmm. that that was a concern because it was all about carrying on the family name. So it was fun to have her look at all these cosmetics, which actually were lead paint and were killing people at that time. Um, right. She looked askance at that. She didn't want her hair powdered. No, no, hold the purple powder, please, is basically what she said early on in the novel. You know, she's <laughs> just not interested in the big skirts or, you know, right. she's, but I, I don't know if you're there yet, but when she meets Lord Wedderburn, one of the things he notices about her is that she is her demeanor. Yes. She has a queenly carriage, she said. Yes. It's just her deportment, the way she carries herself. You don't have to be a beauty to carry yourself well. She was very neat in her dress. She had a fashion sense in that she, no matter what she wore, she was attractive and pleasing. So mm-hmm. I tried to get it off. You know, we can't, I've never been happy with the way I look. We, I, right. you know, we've never, we're not, um, we're assigned our looks. We're, mm-hmm. We have nothing to do with them. You know, we can do the most with what we, what God gives us. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said, "There's, there, God must love plain people because He made so many of them." <laughs> I've never forgotten that. And so, you know, it was. It's just nice to kind of buck convention, even in literature, and have heroines that are plus sized and plain. You know, it's refreshing yes. because we can identify with that. And it's right. kind of a freeing experience. Yes. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm not very far. I just passed where Lord Wedderburn and Blythe meet each other. And and yes, it is interesting that he's, it's not like she's ugly. I mean, the, he doesn't find her. Repulsive. Right. Right. <laughs> Right. Which one of the George's kings, one of the King George's found his wife absolutely repulsive. That's another story. Oh my goodness. No, no hint of of that in this novel. He's intrigued by her and and doesn't want to host her, but Mm -hmm. he finds, you know, her more compelling than, than not. Right. Yeah. So you've mentioned a little bit about 
I, I don't know if it's your next book that you mentioned or one that's further out, right. but I'm wondering what are, what's coming next for you? Okay. Well, the, the day, January 3rd, that the Rose and Thistle released, I submitted novel 15, which has just been titled, and I'm revealing that title this week, in fact. Um, so we have an official title for this Acadia novel set in yes. present-day Nova Scotia, which I believe you were researching at the same time I was a year or so ago. Yes, and I didn't I didn't get very far with it. So. Yeah, <laughs> that was next, well, there's plenty of time. So Right. I might come back to that. Right. So this novel is about Acadia. It was about the uh, Acadian expulsion from Nova Scotia by the British in 1755 mm-hmm. at the start of the French and Indian War. So it is the, one of the hardest novels I've ever written, maybe the hardest. I don't know. I don't think I did it justice. I'm not Acadian. Um, I'm not even Canadian. There you go. The American lens again. But I was absolutely mm-hmm. horrified by the expulsion and what the British did to these poor people who were peace-loving. And so I yes. delved into that. And so you have this new novel uh, coming out next January. And I'm very touched with the characters, one in particular who's a secondary character that I find absolutely fascinating. My editor did too, interesting. I didn't even tell her that this character had me wrapped around his finger and she <laughs> immediately fired off to me. Oh, she talked about him and said that he had done the same to her. So wow. that's a compelling character that he's not even a main character. So I said, I actually like him almost better than the hero. So there's a oh little, my goodness. <laughs> there's a little uh, uh, blurb for you ahead of time. Yeah. Something we'll have to look forward to. Yeah. Cover art is in process now. Cover should appear this summer. And then the, like I said, I, do the title reveal this week. Right. Okay. I can't wait. So this is my last question for you. And it's kind of a fun question that I'm asking repeat guests now, instead of giving them the same question as the first time they were on. If you could choose to live in any time in history, other than right now, what time period would you choose? Oh, you know, the, the Laura who, the Laura of 30 years ago would have said the colonial era, the Georgian era. But I have, I, I can't abide their uncleanliness, their lack of <laughs> hygiene and sanitation there. Yeah. You know, I would, have, I would not have been one of the privileged people then I would have, I, well, the Humes were nobility, but my Americans other were kind of shirt tail, you know, relatives <laughs> barefoot and just trying to survive. I, you know, honestly, if I could live in any period of history, it would it would probably be, oddly enough, the 1950s mm. before the you know the internet what came about in '94. Yes, I I and I lived uh, part half my life before that, so I'm always prefer pre devices t- that time mm-hmm. period. I had a a kind of a. a a, a delightful childhood, you know, free of that. My childhood was yes. all books and sunshine. I lived in the South and, and pools and big family Southern dinners. And I would go back probably to the fifties and sixties before, you know, any, any 
hint of the web or the internet or even the phone, really. Remember? I know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just dominating our lives in, in a not so good way. Although there are, you know, it does right. keep connected. It lets us do Zencaster here and lets me fire off a manuscript to my editor in New York or Nashville or wherever. And yes. I mean, Jocelyn Green and I, I was just interviewing her a little bit ago and she kind of, she and I came to the same conclusion. Like be, I said, just before smart, before smartphones. Would, would yes, be good. Exactly. Yeah. But I do remember when I was a kid, I remember when we got an answering machine and that was a big deal because right. before if, if you missed someone, you missed them. I know. And I tell my boys when I grew up with three channels on the TV <laughs> and there were, my right. mother didn't even have a TV before me. And mm-hmm. then we talked, when we talked, the phone rang really annoyingly. And then we talked with a cord attached to the wall and they're yes. like, what? You know, it's, it makes you feel really old. So you and Joycelyn have decided that it's pre-device too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Especially, Although, you know, we do see the benefits, you know. Well, true. There's a flip side. I think it's especially concerning for us who have children to see yes. what that have never been raised without them. You know, what is it going to look like in 50 years? Yes, yeah. exactly. It's, you don't, you don't know what it's, how it's going to affect them. So Laura, as always, this has been a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you. It has. I love talking books and I look forward to hopefully you can do it again. Me too. But tell me, what is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, LauraFrance.net is my website and it was given a, uh, I have a new look thanks to Jones Health Creative. So I have a beautiful website. I think it's not quite a year old and I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. I'm not so fond of Twitter. I do mm. I do go to Pinterest, but just go to my website. Halfway down the homepage, you can sign up for my seasonal newsletter. I'm working on my April newsletter now. And since I only send them four times a year, I try to make them extra special. And right. so look for that. Easy to sign up. Get a little sign-on bonus. I think you get a... a a file of my most beloved books. So oh, nice. a little perk for that. Thank you for asking. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Hope to see you again. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laura. As usual, I want to remind you to go to the show notes, which you can find either in your podcatcher app or by going to alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And in the show notes, you will find links to Laura's books, as well as links to my Instagram to follow me and the show on Instagram. You can also find the link to our podcast group on Facebook, which is called Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. You can find that just for by searching on Facebook if you want to and join the conversation there. You can also find the link to our Patreon on the show notes. That's patreon.com slash Treat. That's one way you can support the show with your pocketbook. And that helps us keep the lights on here at Historical Fiction Unpacked. 
Of course, there are free ways to support the show. First of all, make sure you're following or subscribed to the show in whatever app you use to listen. And then if you can leave us a rating and review, that is super helpful. It helps um, other lovers of historical fiction to find the show. So as usual, I'm going to leave you with an appropriate quote. And this one comes from a famous Scot named Sir Walter Scott. He said, tears are the softening showers, which cause the seed of heaven to spring up in the human heart. So my friends, don't be afraid of your tears and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week. 